You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 167, the IBM PC. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is December 1st. And I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about the IBM PC. I got a few uh, news stories. News stories meaning uh, things in my life, not real-life news stories. Um, let's see. First of all, <laughs> we had an awesome ice storm this weekend. I don't know if you happen to see on the news, but Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the Midwest, was hit with a ice storm I saw my hometown, the town I live in, Yukon, Oklahoma, mentioned specifically. Uh, it's one of those ice storms. If you've never seen one, the uh, the ice comes down and it lands on the trees and it lands on the power lines and it lands on the power poles. And as that ice accumulates, it gets really heavy. And so it starts breaking things. It breaks trees. It breaks old trees, young trees, big tree branches. It's a very eerie sound to be outside and just hear complete silence followed by these cracks that almost sound like shotgun blasts. Um, it's very, very kind of creepy. And so uh, over the weekend, more than 50,000 people in Oklahoma City went without power. Uh, so this was right after Thanksgiving. I guess I should have jumped in and started with Thanksgiving. I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving and, and got together with uh, their friends or loved ones and thought about things that they're thankful about. I know that I did. I uh, am fairly sentimental type of guy. I think maybe that comes with nostalgia and being interested in retro things. But uh, I'm definitely thankful. One of the many things I'm thankful for is for you guys that you guys keep downloading the shows and listening to them, uh, that you've stuck with me all these years and that uh, I'm still able to do these different podcasts, this and Sprite Castle and, and Multiple Sadness and Throwback Reviews, just all the stuff uh, that I continue to work on. Uh, and I'm thankful for you guys for going on this journey with me. So, uh, And we were thankful over the weekend that we had power. <laughs> Our power did not go out, which is really funny because – the power in this house goes out all the time. We get power flickers, even when the weather is good, probably once a week, maybe. So the fact that our power stayed on uh, was really good for us because we were able to invite other people over. So my my mom and her husband came over and my sister's kids came over and my dad came over and we had some coworkers came over. We watched the uh, Bedlam OU OSU football game. So uh, we were we were able to to share our power and and you don't think about all the things you don't have with power as I've been scrolling through Facebook and seeing posts <laughs> from friends of mine. Of course, uh, no power means no uh, internet access, 
but lots of people have phones and, and they're able to get on the internet that way. But you can only do that for so long without recharging your phone. So people move out to their cars to run their cars kind of as a driveway generator, so to speak, and and recharge their their cell phones and, and uh, electronics and things like that. But uh, a lot of people, you know, you need power eventually to uh, refill your toilets <laughs> and run your dishwasher. And uh, a lot of people out here, if you live outside the city, a lot of people have well water and the wells are electric. So all of a sudden you have no running water in your house. So uh, having no power for more than a day or two can be a pretty, pretty big inconvenience. So I believe everybody that I know, uh, this and this is a terrible story, uh, but there were a few fires, house fires last night as they turned the power on, uh, as they're restoring power to all these neighborhoods and houses, some of the electrical wires were damaged during the ice storm. So they, they, you know, these people that went without electricity for three or four days, then when they turned the power on, there were electrical uh, sparks that started house fires. So what a, what a crappy end to four days of no electricity. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it's, um, I think tonight it's 50 degrees or something. So that's, that's Oklahoma for you. Cold and, you know, always, uh, up and down just follows the winds. I got my, uh, for those of you that are following my, my college escapades, I did get my uh, acceptance to grad school. Uh, so I will be starting, uh, I think I'm taking two classes next semester and I am wrapping up my first class that I took this semester, which was writing the short story. I got my third short story back and I got an A on all three of my short stories. In fact, my professor said uh, that I should be mailing these out to other publications. So I'm, I'm going to be doing that in the near future. I'd like to combine, you know, in a class like that, you're, you're the topics and the, you're really constrained and you're writing, you have to meet, uh, a definite word count. You have to, you know, meet all the, uh, different rules set up by the professor, like it, you know, and these had to be a man versus man type story and, and so on and so forth. So it was difficult to write exactly what I wanted to write. But, uh, as I, as I go forward and continue to write, especially if I'm get more into writing fiction, I, I want to combine my love of, you know, different things of retro, uh, ideas and collecting and, and topics and old computers and video games. Um, I, I know that, some of that's already been done. I mean, we can point to Ready Player One by Ernest Cline and, and books like that uh, that have, have done a good job or have done a job of mixing and matching that, that love of retro uh, games and, and uh, the 80s with a modern or even futuristic type story. But I think that there's more than one story that can be told in that uh, that type of setting, you know? And so that, that's kind of where my mindset is right now. Like I want to move forward in writing, but I also want to write about the things I love about, not just what's popular. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to write a, a good zombie story or a vampire story. It's just not me, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, based on, I kind of went back, I think for this first class, what I wanted to know for me is, is this something I could do? I mean, I think I'm a good writer and I've had people tell me, that they think I'm a good writer, but I was looking for it from someone who, uh, my professor has sold over 40 novels. Uh, she is a well-respected author. And I, I guess I wanted 
an opinion from somebody that was in the business, you know, and based on what she said, I, I think, uh, I think I'll be moving forward. So that's, uh, pretty much, Oh, you know what? We had another fun, uh, this is a, a kind of a technical adventure. So I'll, I'll mention this. My daughter lost her iPhone last week and, uh, I've already got grief from people saying, what are you doing? Giving a little kid an iPhone. I mean, my daughter is, uh, 10 years old, which means, uh, she's in fifth grade. So is, is that too young? I mean, literally, I, and I don't want to be this kind of parent, but almost everyone in her class has a cell phone of some type. And, and when I say cell phone, very few of them are flip phones or anything like that. By fifth grade, they all have smartphones. They are encouraged to bring and use smartphones in school. They have class assignments that involve doing research on their phones. And, uh, you know, so they use their phones for school. So it's not, um, if you don't have kids of that age, uh, you would be surprised to find out how much they actually uh, use and need uh, a smartphone. But uh, my daughter is usually pretty uh, good. She's pretty responsible with those things. But she made a temporary mistake. She went off to go play basketball and she set the phone on my wife's car at a time when my wife normally would not be leaving the house, but she did leave the house and she left and the phone fell off the car somewhere. <laughs> so we got our first adventure using find my iPhone. Uh, we ran the app and unfortunately I think when the phone landed, either my daughter had turned it off or it was on airplane mode or something, but it wouldn't show up. So we, we drove up and down the street. Of course, this was at night. Uh, we had the headlights on bright and kids with flashlights hanging out the windows. We did everything we could. We could not find the phone. The next day, my son used find my iPhone and we did find the phone and, and the phone was all the way across the other side of town. Uh, it was a 30 minute drive away. It was on the Northeast. It was like Northeast 30th and Bryant which, uh, if you're not familiar with Oklahoma city, it is a high crime type area. So we called the police and said, we know where the phone is at. And the police said, we'll meet you over there. And we went over there and then the phone was moving and the police, the police officer that we talked to said that it wasn't accurate enough for them to just go into somebody's house, which I kind of agree. I understand what he's saying, but I kind of disagree. I've done experiments. I've taken my iPhone and my iPad here at the house and moved them around, and you can see where they are in my house using Find My iPhone. So I think it is pretty accurate, um, but he didn't feel that it was. And so we um, kind of we had to let it go. We had already locked it remotely, so... Uh, whoever has the phone, uh, you can and find my iPhone and, and, uh, all these things, you can set up a message on the phone. And so when you turn my daughter's phone on, it says this phone has been lost or stolen. Please call me at, and has my phone number. And when the phone was on, we knew someone had the phone. Obviously they had seen that message and they weren't calling or contacting us. So at that point we had to write the phone off, but we did have the foresight to buy the insurance for my daughter's phone uh, because I thought getting her a uh, expensive phone at that age was pretty crazy. And, and so the insurance might just pay off and it turns out that it did. So uh, they sent us a new phone. 
So it all works out. My daughter's all happy. She's got a new phone. Uh, the person who stole the phone. And, you know, it's hard to say stole the phone. I mean, they found a lost phone. Uh, so I don't know if that's stealing it or not. But once you, you turn the phone on and you see that message and you're not returning it, I don't know if that's stealing. I think it's stealing, but it's definitely being dishonest. You know that it's, uh, you know, it's in a, a phone cover that has unicorns and, and stuff on it. You know, it belongs to a child, you know, it's not yours. Um, so, and, and with it locked, there's no way, there's nothing for them to do. I mean, the, the phone has been, uh, disabled. It doesn't, doesn't work and won't work. So, uh, the fact that they wouldn't return it, hope they have a good Christmas, you dummies. <laughs> So anyway, that's what's uh, been going on around here. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode of this show in general, you can always email your feedback to me at robohair at robohair.com or leave a message on the You Don't Know Flack voice mailbox at 405-486-YDKF. I suppose I could update that. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash YDKF. Um, or you can just go to the website at uh, podcast.robohair.com. You know what? I uh, forgot to load this week's notes on loading time, but the good news is I have them stored on an SD card, which I can access immediately with my 1541 Ultimate. So let me get these notes loading, and they're done. (laughs) That is the advantage of new modern technology, where we can load and save things through new devices on SD cards instead of having to uh, rely on old technologies like cassette tapes or old floppy disks. And speaking of old technology, let's get started talking about my history with IBM PCs. I have to start this episode by saying there will be some overlap between this and some of the other episodes. I mentioned some of the computers I'll be talking about on the episode where I mentioned every computer I had ever owned. Uh, there, there's some overlap in some of these stories, but I'll try to move through those sections pretty quickly to recap. If you have not listened to some of the older episodes, the first home computer that I owned or that my family owned was a TRS 80 model three. My dad bought that in 1980. Actually, we were on a waiting list and when it arrived, we got the first one in Yukon, Oklahoma. We had that TRS-80 for a couple of years, and for the same price that it was going to cost to add two floppy drives, we sold it and bought an Apple II, actually we bought an Apple II compatible computer, the Franklin Ace 1000, in 1982. So in 1982, we had one computer, uh, the uh, Apple II, or the Franklin Ace 1000, and... A lot of computer history, when people tell stories, a lot of the time they talk about things in historical context, but really what they're doing is talking about things from their own point of view. So from my point of view, there seemed to be uh, a split in the early days of home computing. Uh, you had the PC, you had the Commodore, you had the Apple, and then you had uh, the Atari. So, and there were, there were many other computers, don't get me wrong, but those are the four, I think that I was the most familiar with. Um, and and I guess I'd throw in the TI 99, I would throw that in there. Um, 
So my impressions of that time, uh, and I think this is because this was my dad's impression, so I, I got this from him, was that the IBM was for people who had IBMs at work. Uh, and they could bring their work home and work on it at home. And so they would have the same kind of computer that they maybe had on their desk in the office. Then they had the, the uh, Apple II computers. And, of course, around here at least, Apple IIs were invading the schools. Our school had an Apple II on one of those little carts that they would push around from, from room to room. And so uh, Apple II kind of had this reputation at that time of being an educational-type computer. You could do uh, productivity and play games and stuff. But, um, that's, you know, when, when I heard people saying they were buying an Apple, it was because, oh, well, we have an Apple or my kids use an Apple at school. And so that's why they would buy an Apple for their house. The Commodore 64 was of course the game playing machine. Uh, again, you know, it could do productivity, maybe not as well as, uh, uh, the PC. It could do, uh, other types of things, word processing. But most of the time when people bought Commodore 64s, they bought it for its gaming abilities. Then you had the Atari line of computers. I didn't know anyone at that time that owned an Atari computer, but the perception that I had was uh, people bought those for multimedia type, uh, you know, get people that were into music, also people that were into games. And Atari had the, the name recognition, you know, from... Uh, everybody was familiar with the Atari home video consoles, like the 2600 and the 5200. So uh, the Atari name, of course, had a certain amount of uh, credibility at that time. And then uh, the TI-99, my impression, and this may not be popular, I may get some hate mail over this, but most of the people I knew that had TI-99s were purchased uh, by their parents who didn't know anything about computers. <laughs> so I, I, I don't mean that to sound ugly, but... Um, that was kind of the impression, you know, it was like, oh, I got a TI-99, but I wish I'd have got a <laughs> whatever, you know. Um, so anyway, in the, uh, uh, you know, as home computers started coming out, I mean, we had this Apple II, but my dad really thought that IBM was the way to go. Uh, IBM, you know, of course, had major, major uh, name recognition in the home computer or in the computer market, I guess, you know, the uh, business computer market. And so when they announced that they were releasing a home version uh, called the PC Junior, my dad uh, was very interested in this. Now, the PC Junior was released in March of 1984, and my grandfather, O'Hara, passed away uh, in the summer of uh, that same year, and my dad got a little bit of money when he passed away, not very much money, but he took that money with, with whatever money he got, he purchased the PC Junior. So we got it in August um, of 84, March, April, May, June, July. So five months after uh, it came out, we got our PC Junior. Uh, I looked online. It looks like the original PC Junior sold for $1,269, and that was the version that came with 128 k of memory and no monitor. <laughs> so if you wanted a monitor or to upgrade the RAM, which a lot of people did and we did, uh, it cost more money. It came with, uh, it would do multiple graphics modes. So it did CGA, which was important because that gave it compatibility with the IBM PC. But it also had a lot of unique color uh, and graphic modes. There was a uh, 160 by 200 at 16 colors. There was a 320 by 200 
at 16 colors, which is uh, comparable to the Commodore. Uh, there was also a 640 by 204 color uh, mode. So, so there were a lot of different graphic modes that it was capable of doing. Uh, my memories of the PC Junior, I remember that it had the two cartridge ports on the front. There were a few cartridge-only games. Uh, we had Basic on a cartridge, so instead of having to load Basic, you could just plug in a cartridge and turn the machine on and start programming. Um, it also had these unique sidecars uh, that you attach to the side of the desktop to expand because there wasn't enough room inside for you know full size cards, so you would expand sideways. And I remember the first card we bought was uh, a five twelve meg expansion. So I guess that would have taken us uh, what to six forty. And uh, it also allowed you to add a mouse. It had a serial port that would allow you to add the mouse. So uh, we bought that uh, pretty soon after we got the PC Junior. We also got the crappy chiclet keyboard. The original PC Junior came with what they call a chiclet keyboard. It was a looked like a, an IBM-shaped keyboard, what we would think of a keyboard now. But the buttons were little tiny plastic squares that pressed in, and there was a big space around each one. The idea was uh, for more complicated programs, you could put templates on the keyboard. Um, but uh, it was really difficult to type <laughs> quickly on and the keyboard was also wireless. And I remember this. Uh, it used four AA batteries. And it was a what we call now a line of sight wireless. So the keyboard had to be pointing directly at the computer. So like if you put it down in your lap below the desk, it wouldn't work. Now, there was a phone cable. But for some reason, I don't know. I don't know if you had to buy the phone cable or what. But I know that we didn't have one. I remember... Uh, because my dad in the, the top drawer of the desk always had spare AA batteries. So if you were using the computer and the batteries, the keyboard stopped working, <laughs> you would have to pull the, the batteries out and put new batteries in the keyboard. So they IBM did offer a deal where you could, I think you had to send that one back, but they would replace it with a normal uh, size keyboard. You know, this keyboard was also scaled down. I don't think it had um, the number keys um, I don't even think it had dedicated function keys. I'd have to look that up, but um, but it was definitely a, uh, a mini scaled type keyboard. So you could send that one back eventually, and they would send you a full size keyboard, and that's what we did. The first game I remember playing on the IBM PC Junior was King's Quest, and King's Quest is infamous because uh, not only did it launch that style of Sierra uh, online adventures, but it was designed to show off the new capabilities of the PC Junior. They were contacted before the release of the PC Junior, and they made a game that showed off the system's color and sound. Uh, believe it or not, King's Quest, the uh, resolution is 160 by 200 in 16 colors, but it still looked pretty good, especially for people that were used to what we thought of as IBMs at that time, which were uh, mostly, you know, if you've seen movies from the early 80s or late 70s, uh, you know, big, giant, clunky machines that were mostly monotone uh, or monocolor, and some were monotone. <laughs> you know, you had this crappy um, PC speaker that would just beep and, and make shrill noises, you know. So to hear 
the sounds coming from King's Quest, the birds tweeting and little bits of music and things like that. It was really pretty impressive. Uh, some of the other games I wrote down here that I remember playing from that time were uh, Boulder Dash. That was a popular game where you would go through a maze and uh, pick up these diamonds and avoid getting smashed by boulders. Uh, Zaxxon was one that we had pretty early, which I remember my dad was really, uh, impressed by. He always says that was the first, uh, 3d type game that he remembered seeing. Uh, of course on, on, uh, I think we just had the PC version of it. So it was just four colors, you know, that, that cyan blue color and purple and, and black and white, but, uh, it still, it still made an impression. Uh, we also had Tapper. I remember playing a lot of Tapper on the PC Junior, which was uh, fun. We had a couple of games on cartridges. Uh, I'm pretty sure we had both River Raid and Pitfall 2. Now, this was uh, programmers at that time had to make a decision. Did they want to release games in EGA graphic mode? so that they would be also compatible with the IBM PC? Or did they want to take advantage of some of the PC Junior's better graphic modes, but make the games not compatible? And that's what uh, Activision chose to do with River Raid and Pitfall 2. They used um, graphic modes that were specific to the IBM PC Junior, so they wouldn't work on a PC. And they released them on uh, cart instead of on floppy disk, which I have read... Uh, that was supposed to possibly curtail piracy of those games. I know that was uh, an attempt on the Commodore as well. Uh, if you could release games on a cartridge, it would be more difficult to copy them than it would be if you released an unpredicted game on a floppy disk. Uh, and then we had Rogue, which if you're not familiar, I'm sure you've heard of at least the term roguelike games, um, but the original was Rogue. We have the version, I think, that was released by Epics, which was kind of a cleaned up version of a, a previous one. Uh, but in Rogue, you are an adventurer. It's all drawn with, uh, I guess that's pet ASCII graphics, uh, just ASCII graphics, but with color. So that outside of the maze was brown and, and um, you were a little happy face and you moved through and each thing that you ran into in the dungeon uh, was like a scroll was signified by a little music note and a ring was a little O. And of course, every creature was just a letter uh, based on the first letter of whatever the creature's name was. So a Y was a Yeti. Uh, and an L was a leprechaun, and Bs were bats, those sorts of things like that. And there was no uh, real strategy as far as the battles. You just ran into the person over and over, and depending on what your uh, strength and what weapon you had and what level you were, it would determine, you know, who hit who and who didn't hit who. Um, so it was, it was uh, very simplistic, but that game was so addictive. I played that game so much, uh, and I still play that game. I have that game... On my iPad, I have. They've released a version of Rogue uh, for iOS. I play it on my iPad every now and then. I break it out and I play it on the computer. I think I have to run it through DOSBox to play it. But uh, man, I played that game a lot, and I, I still enjoy it. <laughs> um, so we have the PC Junior for well, we had it for a while, but um, my dad got a good deal on an IBM XT, which was the next. Uh, step for home PCs. There was the AT and then the XT. Uh, and so I know that by the summer of 85, he also had the XT because 
That was the summer, as I mentioned before on a previous episode, that Yukon Software opened. And Yukon Software was the computer software store that my parents ran in Yukon, Oklahoma from the summer of 85 through the summer of 1986. So we took the... uh, that we had another Apple that we had bought just for the store. It was a Laser 128, which was a uh, 2C compatible Apple. So up at the store, we had uh, the Laser 128. We had uh, the IBM XT. And then we had a Commodore SX64, which was the uh, portable or luggable version of the Commodore 64. So those were all set up. Uh, in the store, we would use them to run demos on. And, and a lot of times my dad would just let me play games while we were at the store. We, it was like a little, it was kind of a, a separate room, but it had windows, like windows without glass, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know what to call that, but uh, big openings. So no matter where you were in the store, you could see the computers that were sitting in there. And we would... uh you know, play games or whatever. And then people would walk by while they were looking at software and see us, you know, playing the actual games that we sold in the store. So, um, now at that time at home, my dad had the PC junior and I had my Commodore 64 that was in my bedroom. Now when Oklahoma or, uh, uh, Yukon software closed, my dad kept the XT. He sold the Laser 128 and he sold the PC Junior um, and the SX64. So that basically left us with uh, the IBM XT at home and uh, the Commodore 64 in my bedroom. The next real PC I remember owning, uh, we got in 88 or 89, and that was our 286. Now, a 286 was a big jump from uh, the IBM XT. For starters, it had uh, VGA, VGA graphics, which gave you 256 colors and and higher resolution. So the games and the software that we could run were much better on the 286. This was a, uh, I remember the, the front of the 286 had the turbo mode for overclocking. So it ran at 10 megahertz, but if you press the button, it ran at 12 megahertz. I think, I don't remember if I said 10 and 12. We had one that said low and high. <laughs> it had like a little, uh, you know, LCD uh, uh, readout on the front or LEDs, whatever they were. Uh, but um, yeah, I remember. So you could press the little turbo button and speed things up occasionally. Uh, on our original 286, we had an AdLib sound card. If you're not familiar with the AdLib sound card, AdLib came out right around the same time as Sound Blaster. There was actually some controversy at the time because I believe it was Yamaha was supplying chips to both companies and the AdLib was ahead of the game. They had gone uh, first, but for some reason, uh, Yamaha kept rejecting the, sh- the uh, chips that they were sending to AdLib, saying that they were bad. But they sent the ones to Sound Blaster, to Creative Labs, who own Sound Blaster. So AdLib was the first one under development, but I think Sound Blaster actually beat them to market. Now, this, uh, you know, Sound Blaster, sound cards in general were a huge thing at the time because, you know, if you didn't have a sound card, you the only sound you got was through the little PC speaker. So, you know, by adding this sound card and plugging in a pair of speakers, all of a sudden you got this great sound. Now, we had an AdLib card, 
And someone explained to me one time that the, uh, I don't know if this is exactly true, but this is what someone told me, was that the uh, ad lib was capable of doing seven voices and the sound blaster was capable of doing 11 uh, but it was the same seven voices basically for music and sound effects, but those other four voices were used for digitized speech. So if you played a game and you had an ad lib card, you didn't get the speech. But if you had a sound blaster, you did. Now, the ad lib, I think, actually cost more than a sound blaster. But what happened was a lot of people bought ad libs, and then when the sound blaster you know, caught on, Everybody dumped their ad libs and went to Sound Blaster. So uh, we got an ad lib used, I think, from someone else. Uh, and I'm sure we we didn't pay whatever they were selling for at the store. Ad lib actually, I think, went bankrupt in 91 or 92. Uh, so Sound Blaster just thoroughly beat them. On my first PC, I had a Pro Audio Spectrum 16 sound card. I remember buying it uh, at Walmart, I think, for about $300. It was either $279 or $299 for just a sound card. So just to add sound to my computer was $300. <laughs> there were other sound cards at the time. Uh, there was the Gravis, which everybody, you know, raved about Gravis audio. It was, it was supposedly, uh, so much better than what the sound blaster could do. The early sound blasters weren't great cards. Um, there was always, you know, a little bit of interference and popping and clicking and things like that. Obviously they got better. Um, you know, there was a long string of, uh, sound blaster cards. There was the Sound Blaster, and then I remember Sound Blaster 16, and then there was the Aw32 and Aw64 line. Uh, so th those were, uh, you know, it seems weird now thinking about paying to add sound to your computer, but that's um, that's how it worked back then. And not only did you get sound, but you got a MIDI port. There was a 15-pin port on the back of the card, and the port was not only used for a MIDI interface, but it was also used for joysticks. And that was uh, another addition. You know, we had these crappy, clunky joysticks for a long time on the PC. Those um, uh, ones, you know, analog ones where you had to trim the, the X and the Y axis uh, and get the, uh, uh, you know, get them centered and get them to work right. But um, I had a Gravis gamepad which basically looked a lot like a Super Nintendo. I mean, it was the same shape as a Super Nintendo gamepad, but uh, uh, the, the buttons were different colors. I seem to remember there was a lot of, uh, I think the controller part was was purple, and then the buttons were different colors. Um, but uh, yeah, for the first time, you could take a gamepad that was uh, the standard, you know, for the NES and Super Nintendo and Genesis and plug that directly into your PC and play games. So that was, um, you know, kind of a, a big revelation at the time to be able to uh, to do that uh with the sound blaster there were some different programs that came with it um there was dr sabazzo or sabazzo uh and the sb i think is sound blaster and dr sabazzo was um basically the old uh, eliza program if you've ever seen eliza where you would load it up on a computer and it would say tell me our problems and you know you would say why well, don't feel well today why don't you feel well today? <laughs> and it would just randomly pick these phrases out and throw them back at you, you know. I don't like you. What is it about 
like that you don't like. You know, it was gobbledygook. It wasn't really interpreting what you said, but uh, um, but Dr. Spazzo, uh took it up uh, a notch by adding a voice to the program. So that was anything that that you know could talk or play music or whatever. All of a sudden, was it was a big deal with the release of Sound Blaster cards. My name is Dr. Spazzo. I am here to help you. Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence. Memory contents will be wiped off after you leave. So, tell me about your problems. Um, you know, there was a Sound Blaster demo program that came with the Sound Blaster that had the uh, talking parrot. God, I remember that thing. Hello there. I'm a talking parrot. Please talk to me. Don't touch me. You could talk with your uh, microphone uh, and say something and it would repeat it back in a higher pitch. And, and we would do this for, you know, half an hour. <laughs> it seems silly now, but we spent a lot of time uh, just talking to a uh, virtual talking parrot on the computer. Dumb. Uh, also, with the uh, Sound Blaster stuff, you know, back in the like on the Commodore, we had... Um, you know, these SID songs, um, or I always called them the 30120 songs because you would load them and you would type SYS 30120 to, to launch them. Uh, and, and you know, once we got uh, Sound Blaster, we got MIDI songs and we got um, mod music later. Um, you know, uh, there was mod modules, like sound modules, um, mods on the Amiga and probably uh, other computers, but they once they showed up on the IBM, you know, you would just download these songs that were, you know, 50K or 100K or whatever, and then load them and listen to them, and we would listen to the entire song just like you were listening to something on the radio. Again, it, it seems silly nowadays, but uh, that's what we did. With the 286, man, I wrote down a bunch of games I have great memories of. I'm not going to talk in depth about them, but I remember um, Prince of Persia was a big one. I mean, Prince of Persia was a game that uh, when you played it on the PC, it looked, you know, as good or better than a lot of the other games, you know, uh, uh, games that were out there on other systems. So the Prince of Persia, I remember playing Indy 500, which was a uh, polygon-based racing game, and you could uh, play it different um views like first person or third person. But the big thing I remember about that game is that it had a instant replay whenever you crashed. And so my favorite thing was, uh, you just play on an oval track and the light would go green and everyone would take off. And then once all the other cars were gone, you would just do a 180, a U-turn and head around the track the wrong way and just smash into the pack <laughs> in a head on collision. And then after you would do that, you would watch the replay and it would, you could see all the, see your tires bounce around and stuff. And, and you could pick different viewpoints and stuff. It was uh, really amazing. It was almost like a crash simulator is uh, the way I used it. Um, I remember playing lots of Tetris. The Tetris was a, a good game that worked for the PC because you didn't really need a joystick. You could play it easily with uh, keyboards. A lot of these games we played with the keyboard Prince of Persia and, and all these games. Uh, we played a lot with uh, uh, the keyboards. 
I remember uh, meeting a guy, I think after high school, a guy I'd known in high school, but I, I met up with him after high school, and he gave me a copy of Ninja Gaiden, uh, which I didn't know they were making games like that for the PC, but that was cool uh, to find. Some of the other ones, I played Ancient Art of War and the Ancient Art of War at Sea, uh, having these, uh, you know, I had friends that were into Risk and those types of strategy games, and so we would play uh, Ancient Art of War, those same type of games on the PC. Uh, all the Sierra games, my gosh, you, you got... Um, Oh, other than King's Quest, there was a Quest for Glory or Heroes Quest. You had Space Quest. You had Police Quest. Gosh, what else? Um, Leisure Suit Larry, uh, the Black Cauldron. You know, all those types of point-and-click adventures where you would move around, um, click on different things. You know, if you're familiar with uh, Maniac Mansion uh, or Day of the Tentacle, those type of games were very, very popular back then, um, and I, I just remember playing all those. I didn't beat very many of them, but I enjoyed playing them greatly. Um, some of the other games I wrote down here, I had uh, Solitile. I played a lot, which was a, a Mahjong-type game, except for all the tiles were uh, Americanized, so instead of the, the uh, Japanese-type symbols or whatever, you would see... Uh, you know, a car or a ball or, you know, colored bricks, things like that. Uh, Commander Keen, there were a lot of those type games. Halloween Harry's one, I remember, um, that were shareware. So you would get the first level, you would download those, and they were platform type games. They were never as good as what was going on on the consoles. They didn't compare to uh, Mario or anything like that, but they were still fun. It was almost like a novelty to be able to play those on a PC, um, where, you know, most of your friends had to pay money and buy those, uh, on a console. Uh, Bananoid was a VGA version of Breakout. It was a shareware type clone, but it was, uh, VGA. It was 256 colors and, and had sound. So I played that a lot just because it looked so good. Uh, a lot of times, you know, as we were moving into this new world, uh, where the PC was advancing away from its, uh, you know, CGA four color roots, uh, that, uh, you would just play something just because, uh, you know, it looked good. And then of course there was uh, castle Wolfenstein 3d, which, uh, they are still basically remaking today. Um, <laughs> first person shooters have come a long way since then, but that was, uh, definitely a breakthrough title. Uh, and then you would, you know, we saw doom and doom two and rise of the triad and, and eventually Quake and all that other stuff. But, um, you know, first-person shooters kind of seemed like a novelty kind of thing. I played a lot of Wolfenstein, but then when other ones came out, I thought, yeah, I already played that. But um, I'm the only one that got tired of them. <laughs> apparently, apparently, everybody else uh, still enjoys them. Um, what else? I had some productivity titles written down here. Um, PFS Write was the... Uh, word processor that we use later on, we moved to word perfect, uh, which you had to have the little template for around your function keys because it was so complicated. But, uh, PFS, right. Is what I did all my homework and stuff. in. And we had Lotus one, two, three, which just fit on a single floppy and you would, you know, run one, two, three. And I would make little spreadsheets, keep track of, uh, oh, my movies or my music, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I remember using that. I remember using PC Tools, um, which always kind of seemed like cheating. I think there was another one. I don't know if PC Tools is at the DOS-based one or Norton Utilities, but uh, or Norton Commander maybe, where you would load it up 
and you would have uh, you know your hard drive on one half of the screen and and your floppy on the other, or you could move things around. But it was like a cheating way. Like if you didn't know DOS commands or how to move files or format disks or things like that, then you could do it with this little you know DOS based GUI, I guess. But um, uh, so I remember seeing that a lot of people using that. I didn't really need that, but um, uh, it was uh, you know it was out there. And then there was this break, you know, um, I was, uh, through 91, through 1991, my senior year, I was a solid, uh, Commodore 64 user. You know, I, I had friends that were moving on to the Amiga. My buddy Justin got an Amiga. Um, but, uh, I was still that 64 guy and my dad had that PC in the living room. So I was starting to do all my, you know, homework and all that on, on the PC. And then the, the games, for a while, I still played on the 64, but eventually the games got better on the PC. And then I went to school for two years. I went to college from 91 through 93, and we used uh, Mac uh, Classic SEs in the journalism program. So I, I wasn't really playing a lot of games. And then I, uh, in 90, well, Christmas in 93, I got my own PC, a 386 uh, DX240. And, uh, all of a sudden, you know, when I got back into the PC, it was just a little break, but games had really taken a leap forward. I mean, now we had, uh, pinball dreams and pinball fantasies. We had, um, uh, uh, dynamics, you know, coming out with all these great, like, uh, incredible machines, stuff like that. Um, gosh, what else do I remember? Uh, the adventures of, of Willie Beamish. It's funny. I'll mention that in a minute, but, um, uh, WWF WrestleMania. I played that all the time. You know, you had digitized people. It was almost like a fighting game. Uh, you know, cause you had all these different moves for your wrestlers. Uh, and then there was another world, which was mind blowing literally to see on a PC. It was just, just so amazing. Um, the, the reason I said I'd mentioned, uh, adventures of Willie Beamish is because in, um, 94, 95, I mentioned that I worked at uh, Best Buy and we had these large bins of uh, games, you know, and so I would go to work and dig through and, you know, if there were things for five bucks or 10 bucks, and that's where I got Willie Beamish. I got the CD version of it, I think for $10, but I bought um, Star Wars chess from there. I bought um, uh, a lot of things, you know, anything that was on CD-ROM was a novelty at that point in time. So I would find things that said they were on CD and I would grab that. Now that Star Wars game is not on CD. I remember specifically it came on 14 floppies <laughs> that you had to install one at a time. Um, you know, when I think back of those times, the, the eighties, there were a lot of computers and IBM was just one, you know, the PC was just one flavor. I mean, you had your Commodore people, your Apple people, your Atari people. Uh, and so the PC people were just one little group, you know? And then by the time, uh, that we hit the, the mid nineties, maybe by then, I mean, everything else had just gone away. The Amiga had kind of drifted away. The Atari computers had kind of drifted, you know? Uh, and you had Macs, and then you had PCs, and, and the Macs were so uh, so much more expensive and had so less software at that time uh, than the PCs did, you know. So I, I mean, I knew people that had Macs that were doing music or doing graphic layout, but all of my friends that I socialized with all had PCs. So it, it just, um, it changed. It changed in just a few years. 
I wrote down a few notes here at the end for things about then versus now, which I just uh, just uh, wrote down a few that came to my mind. The first one is uh, configuration. And man, was configuration different back then. You know, uh, you had to edit your auto exec and your config sys. So if you're old enough to remember those great days of going in and trying to tweak you know, your high memory so you would have enough free RAM to, to load games even. <laughs> or having multiple, I don't know how many of you remember this, having multiple configurations. So uh, loading up a, a menu in your auto exec and, and press one if you want to play games or two if you want to launch Windows 3.1 or, you know, uh, so we would have all these different little memory configurations. Uh, so I remember tweaking that stuff a lot. Um, speaking of, of tweaking stuff, uh, you know, having to configure things like IRQ, uh, and COM ports and things like that was very manual. You know, if you added a modem, you had to go tell the computer, like what COM port was it on? What IRQ were you using? Um, and it was, it was much more difficult than it is now. Um, you know, now you just plug something in and, and Windows finds a driver and you're done, but it certainly wasn't that way. Uh, back in the in the eighties and nineties, and of course there was um, uh, no hot swapping things. You know, if you if you booted your computer and your joystick wasn't plugged in, you would have to plug the joystick in and then reboot so that uh, the machine would recognize it on boot up or your mouse or anything like that. So it's not like USB today where you plug something in and Windows recognizes it. I mean, you had to have those things connected on boot or you weren't going to get to access them. So Definitely very – things are much more user-friendly than they were back then. Um, I think then and now I think about DOS, about how I still am very uh, fluent and comfortable in DOS and DOS commands. I still – I do things with batch files and in DOS every day, I'm sure, uh, you know, for moving files, for doing backups, creating folders – things like that. A lot of times it just feels like I can do them faster if I jump out to a DOS prompt and do that stuff. Then, uh, you know, especially like backups and, and little batch files and scripts. And of course I do um, VB scripts and PowerShell and things like that for more advanced uh, things that I need done. But for basic stuff, man, DOS still works. And I, I, uh, I think back then, I mean, if you wanted to get the most out of your computer, you had to learn that stuff. Everybody knew. If you had a computer in the 80s, you had to know how to use DOS. You had to know how to copy files and move around in directories and stuff. And that's that's just something that's kind of been lost over time, I think. Um, I wrote incompatibilities. And uh, I, guess I'm, I guess there were software and hardware. I mean, you might buy a modem or something that simply wouldn't work with your machine. Or you could buy... Uh, you know, a modem that wouldn't work with the terminal program that you wanted to run. There was just a lot of things like not everything worked with everything. You could buy programs that came home and didn't work with your sound card or your video card, and then you were just SOL. Now, at that time, most computer stores would let you take back software, but, um, you know, as time went on and piracy got worse and worse, uh, you know, they would, they would stress, you know, before you leave the store, you need to read the compatibility thing on the side to make sure it works with your system, but they would still take it back a lot, you know? Um, but same thing, like as far as buying Ram, buying, you know, anything like that, you had to really know your system to be able to purchase those things. 
The other thing I wrote down here was hard drive size was very valuable. And that is true. You know, um, the first hard drive that we owned was a five meg hard drive <laughs> for uh, our, and it was external for our uh, IBM XT. Um, so, you know, there was a time where like 10 meg and 20 meg hard drives did seem big, but they never seemed like they would hold everything you had. You know, everybody had things stored on floppy disks um, to go with what you had on your hard drive uh, for a long time, you know, and then eventually hard drive sizes, you know, got bigger. But uh, and there are times now, like when I'll go, it's hard to jump back and forth. Like I just, I've got this old DOS machine and um, I, I fired it up the other day. I pulled it out of the garage and I'm going to hook it up up here in my game room. So I was dusting it off out in the garage, making sure it worked and fired up. And um, I was looking at the hard drive, and I think the hard drive was uh, a 540 meg hard drive. And I was like, I was just thinking, okay, well, I could do this or that. And, and I started thinking that's less than a single CD, you know, a CD, you could get 650 meg of stuff. So it was less than that. And because I'm thinking like, oh, I've got all these CDs of old games and stuff I want to throw on there. And I thought that hard, that hard drive won't support it. And I think uh, that was, you know, at the era where I think it has, oh gosh, what was that called? Um, like Mac store and stuff. You had the little disc thing you had to load before to trick your BIOS because the hard drive is so big <laughs> that the BIOS wouldn't understand what a 540 meg hard drive actually was. So you had to trick the BIOS. Um, but, um, you know, when you had a hard drive like that, occasionally, you know, you would go through and say, you know, I don't need all these mod files cluttering up my hard drive. I'm going to put these on a few floppies to free up some space. You were always trying to juggle things and free up space. And, I, you know, I just don't get that feeling anymore. Like my hard drive on, on my main PC, like the C drive is a terabyte drive and I think it's half free. And every now and then I'll be going through and I'll see like, oh, here's this thing I downloaded. I forgot to delete it. You know, it's 200 meg. Like there was no time in the 80s or 90s where you would have an extra 200 meg on your hard drive and not notice it. <laughs> that would be half your hard drive or gosh, in the 80s, that would be 10 times the size of your hard drive. You know, so that's I, I guess that's kind of the funny thing, I guess, now where, um, uh, you know, and it just keeps happening. The older I get, the older we all get. Um, I, I bought this RAID drive uh, enclosure several years ago. It's a SATA external drive, and it holds four drives, so I can run uh, four drives in a, uh, any kind of configuration. I'm running them as RAID 5 right now. And at the time, I bought four one-terabyte drives and set it up as a RAID 5. So, of course, you lose one drive for parity. So with these four drives, I have just under three terabytes of storage. Well, now... I could buy a three terabyte hard drive cheaper than I bought all, you know, any of this stuff. Uh, and I could actually put four, three terabyte drives in there. And, and it's just mind boggling how fast, uh, and, and the hardware gets better, but it doesn't really get more expensive. I mean, now, you know, a three terabyte drive costs less than what I paid for these one terabyte drives, uh, you know, three or four years ago. So it's just, just amazing to me. Uh, and especially when I look back, you know, a lot of uh, the PC stuff that I have is memory-based, but 
Uh, and what I mean is like, you know, I remember the old days. I remember stuff. But also, I still have a lot of that stuff too. I mean, I have this old DOS machine that I'm going to hook up uh, for playing games and doing stuff. And I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm just doing it, you know. I mean, I can play stuff in DOSBox, but DOSBox just, when you full screen it on an LCD, just doesn't look right to me. I want to put a freaking DOS machine on a CRT monitor and hook it up and play some old games. That's, you know, if you weren't there, you probably don't have that desire. And even if you were there, you may not have that desire to ever do that again, but I just want to see it. I just want to experience that again. Uh, so that, that's what I plan on doing. So anyway, uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to a few uh, old IBM PC stories. I'd like to get this podcast back on track talking about uh, old computers and old technology but I'll be honest with you I, I'm at the point where I've kind of felt like I've I've run out of topics I mean I have things to talk about but that aren't really in the theme of the show so I need to hear from you guys I need to hear what you want to hear about uh, so again contact me on one of those things you can email me at robohara at robohara.com you can uh, hit me on twitter at commodore you can hit me on the Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash, I think it's YDKF. I don't think it's, uh, you don't know, flat. Uh, or you can call the uh, podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. So get a hold on me. Let me know what you would like to hear on future episodes of You Don't Know Flat. And uh, I think that's it. So thanks again for listening to another episode. <laughs>